The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, it's sure great to be back. I mean that. This, my uh, sabbatical time was just wonderful. Pat and I enjoyed a lot of rest and travel, and it was just incredibly great, a good variety, and it really is great to be back. It's good to see you, most of you, anyway. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, I'll post the list. No, just kidding. Good to see all of you, and uh, great to begin uh, my resuming of ministry last week with that wedding of Dave, Barton, and Lorraine, and, uh, and then continue on in the ministry. On Tuesday night, we had a board meeting. It was just wonderful to be back with leadership, and uh, we had those from the different committees uh, that are getting ready for the building project, and we were together in, in discussion and in updates, and it was so exciting to be part of that. And uh, we were praying for you as a church. We were praying that God would, would make this year just powerful in his favor and that we would together put our weight behind this endeavor that God has brought us to. And we look forward to what the, the Lord has ahead of us. I'm excited about uh, these coming days. And, and on September 10th, 11th, I hope you mark that down. That is a very important weekend when we will gather at the property and we will begin to celebrate and pray and think about together what God has for us in the coming weeks. And so, uh, an exciting time. Before I left on my sabbatical in mid-April, I started the Gospel of John uh, expository series, and, and I got back in time to finish it. And uh, it was, it, it's been great. I've been listening to the odd sermon over the last four months, and it's uh, been wonderful to hear different guys bring the Word of God to us in this expositional series. And I have the privilege of preaching on this resurrection text on John 20, the very theme that uh, John brings out. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's, that's that big theme verse that John has given us in this chapter, chapter 20. And I look forward to uh, sharing the word today and this next week with you as we finish the series. You know, the cross is not only a symbol of the crucifixion, and especially the way that we have uh, uh, exhibited it on the stage here, it it is clearly not just about the crucifixion of Jesus, which Andrew preached on last week. It is about the resurrection. You see, the crown of thorns is there. It's not on his head. He left it behind. And the grave clothes... He doesn't have them on anymore. He left them behind. He's alive. He's alive. That that reality, it it escapes us on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. Today, I want to talk about the transformation that He's alive brings to our lives. And uh, indeed, this past... uh, Four months have been great, and if you'll just permit me, I, I won't do this every Sunday, I promise, but I wanted to use this opportunity of the passion and the resurrection of Christ to just show you some of the art that I saw in some of the cathedrals in Italy and Greece when we were there. And let me just tell you a few stories. So Shelley, would you just put up and shut down the lights? Uh, this, these, these paintings are, I'm not going to go into details of who painted them and when, they're all five to 700 years old. And they're all depicting what the Roman Catholic Church 
wanted to display about Jesus, or the Greek Orthodox Church wanted to display about Jesus. The thing that's fascinating about that is that they so understood that there was a masses of people that were illiterate, either literally illiterate or illiterate when it came to the theology of the Bible, and so they used all of their artists to teach biblical history and theology. And so as we see what we see this morning, it's incredible to think about how others in another time that followed Jesus Christ depicted some of these incredible events that we read about in the gospel. So here is a, here is a painting of Jesus and the two thieves on the cross. If you go to the next one, it's a rather gruesome picture close up of the, they were not afraid of blood and of gory stuff because Christ's death was real and bloody. If we go to the next one, we see, and it's kind of washed out too much, but I found this a fascinating painting because it shows God the Father holding up the cross as he gave his son. If we go to the next one, it shows them taking the body of Jesus down. You can see Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, some of the apostles. If we go to the next one, they're laying him in the tomb. Incredible. These are old, old paintings that were teaching about Jesus. The next one I'd like to explain because we want to ask the question, when Jesus was taken down from the cross and put in the grave, where did he go? That's the question, right, that so often is asked. Where did he go? And many of you will know, if you have uh, from other traditions, that the Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell. It's interesting that that phraseology never appears in the New Testament, never appears in the Bible, that Jesus descended into hell. And in fact, if you look at the very first and the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed, that also, that phrase is not in the early versions of the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. And you have to decide, well, what did Jesus do after uh, he died, was buried in those three days. What, what was happening? If you go to the next slide, the, the Catholic Church believes that, by the way, that's, I circle that because that's a demon, and that, that, that is a depiction of an, of an artist of Jesus descending into hell, and the man with the white beard is, is representational of Adam, and the idea of the artist and the theology behind this painting is that Jesus descended into hell and he had to atone for all the believers of the old covenant that had lived before the time of Christ when they were offering animal sacrifices. And so Jesus descended into hell to say to them, you're atoned for as well. So there's Adam and Eve and all the representation of the, the prophets and, and the, apostles, uh, the uh, prophets and uh, people in the Old Testament. But if you go to the next one, this one, this is called The Harrowing of Hell, this painting. And it's from an apocryphal gospel, which means that it's from a, a representation of the life of Christ that was not real. It was not accepted into our Bible, the canon of Scripture, because it contained things about Jesus that they didn't want, the early church fathers did not believe were truly historically about Jesus Christ, doctrinally, theological, historically, and so on. And so this, this description of this painting says that he descends into hell to free and save the righteous of the Old Testament. In a fresco fragment, we see Christ wearing a red robe bordered in gold as with his right hand. He raises up uh, 
like it's hard to read what it says there, who wears a long, Adam, who wears a long white uh, beard and white hair, and so on. It's from the apocryphal gospel of Nicodemus, which if, it, it is not in our Bible because the many accounts of Jesus that were written in the post-Christ time, many of them were just heretical. Some of them were just wrong about the things that they taught. So we don't believe, I don't believe, and many evangelicals do not believe that Jesus descended into hell. I don't believe it's taught in the New Testament. And I thought Andrew did a great job last week when he described what is the words of it is finished mean. It means that on the cross of Jesus, when he died, and when he said it is finished, he, he meant that the debt on that cross was fully paid for. There was no more to be paid. He did not have to be punished further for sins of humanity. He did not have to go to hell to atone for anything else. It was finished. And he could say to the thief on his right, Today you will be with me in paradise. I don't have to take a little jaunt to hell. Can you imagine? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And as soon as the two die in their spirit, he says to the thief, "Um, You go on ahead. I just have to make a little detour to hell. (laughs) Sorry, it isn't true. He didn't need to descend to hell. It is finished. He had accomplished the full work of redemption. The next uh, slide is one that is the only one that I found of the resurrection. I'm not saying that there aren't tons of them there, but it is interesting that the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, they focus a lot on the life of Christ. They focus a lot on the passion of Christ. And after the resurrection, Jesus is often depicted in the heavenlies looking down on the history of humanity. But very seldom is the resurrection depicted. Here it's very interesting. It's almost like a coffin with an angel and the, the women who had come to the tomb. And there's Jesus, the resurrected Lord. The next one I wanted to show you is, uh, can you guess what that is? Can you see? What, who's, who do you think this is? That's right, Thomas. Thomas, he's touching the wounds of Jesus. He said, I gotta be- if I'm going to believe, I've got to touch and see. And the next one is uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead, John chapter 11. I just love how we look at how the artists depicted these things. Well, that's enough of the art lesson for today. Um, I just find it fascinating. Pat was just as fascinated, I'm sure, every time we went to a cathedral. <laughs> I actually almost included a picture of her sitting outside in a courtyard one time when I came outside and she was looking up into the sky. <laughs> Would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20? John chapter 20. And uh, let's read some of this together, this incredible account of the resurrection. John chapter 20, we're going to begin with verse 19, and if you're able to stand and want to join me, please stand as we listen to God's Word. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, could I just pause there? When the disciples were together. Do you know, that that term is repeated in the book of Acts over and over again. Incredible things happen when God's people are together. And you know, the Word of God has a warning, has a a command. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't stop meeting together. 
I want to encourage you. Don't stop meeting with your brothers and sisters. You need fellowship in your life. You need the teaching of the Word of God. You need the encouragement of other believers in Jesus Christ. And throughout the book of Acts, whether it's missionaries being sent or people being healed or miracles happening or God setting apart new apostles or whatever it is, every time it's God's people are together. It says, on the first day of that week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May God bless his word. You may be seated. In April of 1982, you're with me? In April of 1982, I stood before my graduating class of Winnipeg Bible College, presently called Providence, and I gave the valedictorian address. And I began my little speech with the words of J. Allen Peterson. And I said to my graduating class, he said, you will be the same in five years, except for the people you know and the books you read. You'll be the same in five years, except for the people you know and the books you read. Well, more than five years have passed since 1982, and I've been to a few reunions, and I've seen many of my colleagues and classmates over the years, and it's always incredible, as you, I'm sure, have had the experience as well, when you have not seen someone for ages, and then you see them again, and you want to know how they're doing. And my earnest desire always is to know, are they, are they staying on, walking with the Lord? Are they veering off? Have they compromised? What has happened? Certainly, J. Allen Peterson's Words are an overly simplified version of what alters our life trajectory. Books and people are key. There are other things that are shaping influences in our lives, though. Of course, circumstances alone account for a lot of the alterations and transformations that take place in our lives. Circumstances really, though, are not the key shaping influence 
but rather our response to circumstances is what determines our life trajectory. And so it is that we often find people that have gone, stayed steady, straight with the Lord, and other times we see people that have veered far away. John Maxwell has written that there are three times in life when people will change. One is when they hurt enough that they have to. One is when they learn enough that they're able to. And another is when they receive enough that they want to. I want to talk about that in a little while again as we look at the apostles. For if someone would have known the twelve apostles during their years of discipleship with Jesus and then heard about the crucifixion of Jesus... They would have been very confused to meet up with the apostles later on and find them preaching and ministering in Jesus' name. Because Jesus was crucified. And He was crucified by the Romans. The Romans did not make mistakes around crucifixion. And so the conclusion of the people that met up with the apostles years later would have been either these are the biggest liars and deceivers and actors this world has ever seen, or this is the biggest conspiracy ever concocted, or something radical took place that enabled them to continue on as though Jesus was alive. If you were to put this whole thing in another language, let's put it this way. If a snapshot would have been taken of the apostles an hour after the burial of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, and then another snapshot taken two months later after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on them and all of the believers in Jerusalem, there would be no resemblance between the two pictures. There would be no resemblance between the two pictures. Something has to account for this radical behavior of the early church and the apostles of Jesus Christ. What happened? From this small band of dejected, disillusioned fishermen that go back to Galilee and enter their fishing again, to a group of 120 gathered in a prayer room in Jerusalem, and to a movement that has rocked the world more than any other influence since the time of Jesus Christ, a global movement. What is it that accounts for such radical change? If it is not the fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth did not stay dead, but indeed was literally, physically, bodily raised from the dead and appeared to his followers. John Stott writes that the transformation of the disciples is the greatest single evidence for the reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection. John's account tells us about the first encounters. I'd like to go through the outline that's in your bulletin fairly quickly and then conclude with some meaning for us today. <clears throat> and there are four conditions that Jesus found the apostles in in his post-resurrection appearances, and there are four things it left, uh, that he left them with. The first thing I'd like to say is that Jesus found them in fear, and he left them in peace. Verse 19, 
uh, on the evening of that first Easter Sunday after already having heard the report from Mary Magdalene that Jesus was alive, it says that they were still cowering in that room, that locked room, because of the fear of Jewish leaders. If they did this to the master, they might do it to the followers. And before Christ's death, three evenings earlier, the disciples also were smitten with fear. In Luke 24, we read it. In John 14, Jesus had to say, "Let, let not your hearts be troubled, trust in me. Jesus knew that fear would overtake the, the disciples after he had been killed. And he, he, knew, he knew that he had to give them his peace. But in spite of his words prior to his death, they were still haunted with fear. And so, so much so that the very first thing he says when he walks into this room, and we don't know whether he walked through the door, walked through the wall, whether he just appeared, but when he walks in, the very first words, post-resurrection words of Jesus are in, in Hebrew Aramaic, it's Shalom Alechem. And it's a common greeting in Israel today. If you were to walk down the streets of Jerusalem, you would have people say, Shalom Alechem. And the response would be, Alechem Shalom. Peace be unto you. And response, and to you. That's what Jesus said. Three times Jesus said this. Peace be to you. Only through Christ can you have peace with God and the peace of God. And the living Christ is just as alive today as he was the day that he said this to the apostles. And just as he entered their lives, found them in their fears, and left them in his peace, he wants to enter our lives. The simple message of this text is what are your fears today? What are your fears? What are you afraid of? He can enter into your life, into your room, mysteriously appear to you in secret, and he can say to you, Shalom Alechem, peace be to you. You do not need to live in fear. Name the fear in prayer and bring your fears to Jesus. Secondly, I want to say that Jesus found them in grief and he left them in joy. And the deep grief that, the, the, that, uh, that feelings are, are described here comes better out in Mark's account. In Mark chapter 16, verse 10, Mark, after, uh, after the eleven had heard from Mary Magdalene, it says in the scriptures that when Mary found the eleven in that room in Jerusalem, it says that she found them mourning and weeping. And those are two words in the Greek text that are often found together whenever there has been the death of a loved one. Mourning and weeping. Many in our church family understand these two words, mourning and weeping. As Doug reminded us of this week, an incredible week of what happened a year ago in our church family. And there's been much mourning and weeping, deep loss, and since then others that have gone to be with the Lord. John tells us that as they were behind locked doors, it was not just because of the fear of the Jews, but rather there was this element of secrecy to their lives because they were in deep grief. They were in deep grief. We cannot understand fully the grief that these disciples were in having lost Jesus. And when you are soaring over the death of a loved one, there are times when you need solitude 
And there are times when you need community. And the interesting thing is that those that are outside of the immediate grief have that that calling of God to discern when is it that that person needs solitude and when is it that that person needs community. Clearly the disciples had fear mixed with grief. And we can only imagine that on that evening, the third day since Christ died, that when Jesus stands among them and he shows them his side and his hands and he says, it's really me, that they were absolutely stunned. It says they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. In in just a few days earlier in John 16, Jesus had said to them, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Jesus, in this description, is talking about the grief they would feel when he dies. And it says, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Brothers and sisters, everyone who's ever lost a loved one and knows Jesus Christ needs to hear these last words of Jesus. You need to hear the words, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And not only will I see you again, Jesus says, but all your loved ones who have died in the Lord, they will see you again and no one is going to take away that joy then. It is forever joy. There's a scripture that applies to all of us here that we can bring our sorrows to Jesus and know that our grief is short-lived. We will have joy. When we were visiting Corinth in Greece, we saw a plaque over the place where the Apostle Paul was to have believed to have preached when he had to defend the meetings that he was having in Corinth to the proconsul Gallio, found in Acts chapter 18. And, and later on, after Paul had died, a Christian church was built over that very spot and since then, of course, ruined. But a monument has been set there in memory of the Apostle Paul. It's called the Bema, this rock, this stone. And on that place, it's interesting that whoever put that marker there, could have chosen any number of verses from 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but they chose to put there 2nd Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, which says, for this slight momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, whatever it is that are the sufferings that we face, we know that compared to eternity and compared to the joy that is awaiting for us, it is a slight and momentary affliction. Hard to believe that sometimes, but it's true, true truth. Do you know the attitude, the attitude in the face of suffering and death that Christianity had in its early stages after that apostolic era was so radically different than the rest of the pagan world that people came to Jesus because of the way people grieved. 
is incredible because early Christian literature, writings like Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Cyprian, early Christian writings describe over and over again, they argue that Christians suffered and died better than pagans because they did not grieve as those who had no hope. They used the suffering and dying of Christians and the aftermath of that as an apologetic that Jesus Christ was the supreme way. Incredible. Regardless of our sufferings, those of us who know Jesus have been promised that our grief will turn to joy. Friends, that is our hope. The third thing I'd like to say is that Jesus found them in doubt and he left them believing. Perhaps Thomas gets a bad rap in the scriptures. Um, doubting Thomas as he's known, as if he was the only apostle that ever doubted. But the fact is, the scriptures tell us that they were all in unbelief until Jesus came and showed himself to them. It's interesting that Thomas indeed was one of the more cynical ones of the apostles and in John chapter 11, remember when Lazarus dies and Jesus is already being kind of sought by Jewish leaders to be killed. And so he's not near where Lazarus lived in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's far off somewhere else. And, and when he hears about Lazarus' death, he says, well, let, let, we, we got to go. And, and I don't think it's a bold statement of, of conviction that Thomas says when he says this. He says, well, let us also go that we may die with him. Uh, that wasn't a soldier of Christ statement. <laughs> that was mock. That was like cynicism. That was, well, yeah, sure, why don't we all go? Because we're all going to die if we go there. And then later on in John 14, Jesus is talking to them about going away. And he says to the disciples, he says, you, you know the way. You know where, the way I'm going. And Thomas says, whoa, Jesus, time out. We don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. Like he's, he's gut level honest. That's Thomas. So I'm not at all surprised that when we get to this text in John 20, that Thomas just says to the rest of them, I don't care what you guys say. If I don't see him, I'm not believing. And the only disadvantage that Thomas has was that on that first day of resurrection, when they were assembled together, Thomas wasn't among them. And he didn't want to believe what the rest had said. And so a, a week later when he is together and they're together again, Thomas is there as well and Jesus is so clear. Just as adamant as Thomas was saying, unless I see, unless I touch, I will not believe. Jesus comes in the next week and he says to Thomas, see, touch, believe. <laughs> because you see, he knew that this Thomas needed to see, touch, and believe. He would be the apostle that would take the gospel as far as India. Incredible. But then the next verse is incredible. He says, my Lord and my God, crazy in confession of faith that Thomas has. And the next verse, 29, was for our benefit, not for the apostles. But he says, because you have seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus said that for us. We don't, we don't get the opportunity of seeing physically Jesus, but he says we're blessed if having not seen him, we believe. That's where all of us are. We behold him, not physically, but spiritually, ascended at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. We behold him spiritually. That's what Peter meant in 1 Peter 1, 8, verse 8, when he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you're filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is like that. He says, you don't see him like I got to see him, but, but you know what? Even though you don't see him, you believe, and you're, and you're getting the goal of your faith, salvation. Paul says similar things when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. And so Jesus found them in fear, and he left them in peace. He found them in grief. He left them in joy. He found them in doubt. He left them believing. He gave them peace for their fears, joy for their griefs, faith for their doubts. If we go back to John Maxwell's statement that I shared at the beginning of the message, we see that the disciples hurt enough that they had to change. They learned enough that they were able to change. And they received enough that they wanted to change. And the question then remains simply is, now what? Now that they've got joy instead of grief and peace instead of fear and faith instead of doubt, what does God want from them now? And that comes through clearly in this scripture. It's what Jesus is looking for. And that's the fourth and final point of this morning's message, is that Jesus found them in secret, and he left them as sent ones. You see, he, he wanted to, to make a radical transformation because of his joy, peace, and faith that he gave them. He wanted to make a radical transformation in this group. He knew that they would be living testimony of his resurrection, and that would be the best proof of the fact that he's alive. And so in John chapter 20, verse 21, if you have your Bibles, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Can you imagine as they heard those words fall on their ears what they thought? What do you mean you're sending us? Where? What for? But they hardly have a, a moment to process the, the statement before Jesus just says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful scripture. Before they had a chance to think about all the ramifications of being sent and thinking of all their inadequacies, Jesus said, don't worry. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. You're absolutely inadequate. You're totally right. You have no clue how to believe, how to have joy, how to follow. But I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. You know, the picture I get when I, when I see that it came to me when I saw the movie by the C.S. Lewis Aslan, you know, in Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you remember when the wicked witch has, has touched everybody and they've turned to pillars frozen in her castle. And after Aslan comes back to life, you know what he does? He goes to that castle. What does he do? <sighs> he just breathes 
and they come to life. And, and that stone prison that they were in, they were liberated from. I get that picture in this text. When Jesus, seeing these cowering, fearful, lone ranger apostles afraid in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem with locked doors, and he comes upon them, and he says, don't worry. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And then what comes to pass in the days to come is so radically transformative that we don't even recognize the apostles when Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 are added to the church. Elton Trueblood, in his little book called The Company of the Committed, writes this, Commitment is never real unless it leads to mission. And the mission of Christians is always one which points forward and outward. You see, Jesus is not just interested in you enjoying his peace and his joy and his faith and his comfort. He's interested in you joining his mission, you and I. The Holy Spirit of God is with us. And we saw what took place in the apostles when, indeed, he breathed on the early church and they were filled with God and they had boldness. And, and nothing, could, nothing human, friends, could explain the transformation in the apostles. It was divine. So that's a summary of what takes place in John chapter 20. And next week we'll conclude with chapter 21 as we look at the another, another post-resurrection appearance. And especially we look at the, the apostle Peter. He found them afraid. He left them in peace. He found them in grief. He left them in joy. He found them with doubt. He left them believing. He found them in secret. He, he left them as sent ones. And you and I were sent ones as well. Do you feel like that? That you've been sent? Do you embrace the mission of Jesus? Do you realize that He has breathed on you His Holy Spirit for that reason? Not just to enjoy joy, not just to enjoy comfort, not to, to enjoy faith and these things that are all gifts of God, but to be part of His mission. Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher of the late 19th century in Germany, grew up in a Lutheran home. His father was a Lutheran minister. And Frederick Nietzsche said, he was right when he said, no, no. He wasn't right when he said that God was dead. But he was right when he said this. He said that there has only ever been one real Christian. And he was crucified on the cross. He was right. There has only ever been one real Christian, and he was crucified on the cross. And all the rest of us, as followers of this one real Christian, Jesus, all the rest of us are inconsistent in our walk. We falter in our testimony. We are fearful in our approach to life. We lack the boldness. We identify with the apostles. All of us 
are living contradictions of what we profess. All of us. There was only ever one real Christian, Jesus. And that's why he, he breathed on us. That's why he gave us himself. That's why he gave us his Holy Spirit. Because I'll tell you, we walk by mercy and grace and love, and without him, we are nothing. We cannot impact our own lives, much less the lives of the world around us. And so he gives us his spirit. How the world needs to see what the spirit of Jesus can do to change you and I. Because that's the best proof of the resurrection. Our commitment must lead to mission. Just give me a couple minutes more. read a book this past sabbatical by Oz Guinness called Renaissance, in which he describes the decline of the Western civilization that we're all a part of. I don't know if you believe it or not, I totally believe it. The Western civilization as we know it, the Western culture is in decline, and, and I don't know if we'll live long enough to see its absolute demise, but, but it is going down so fast. And in the middle of this, he says that we are living in the twilight of the Western world and that as in previous declining cultures, he compares nine other civilizations to this one, he says that it has become fashionable to turn against the old faith that once inspired and empowered and created the culture. This is incredible. And so, Guinness writes that our age we live in is an ABC moment. We live in this ABC moment of Western civilization. And what does ABC stand for? Anything but Christianity. Which translates really to say anything but Christ. You can get away with anything but Christ and you can have respect and you can have popularity and you can get away with even announcing it on media, but anything but Christianity, it's not going to fly. So clearly in Canada do we see this spirit of the age against Christ. Why? Why? Ask yourself. It's so simple. They don't believe that Jesus was resurrected. They don't believe he lives right now. And friends, you and I are here today probably because we say we do believe in the resurrection and that he is alive right now. I'm telling you that they are living way more consistently to their beliefs than you and I are to ours. There, Nietzsche, Nietzsche also, I'm quoting him again, said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. I'm not here to beat this, beat, beat this on you, beat me up or you up. I'm not saying that at all. I hope that what you hear today is this incredible call to ask God to make us part of his mission, to breathe freshly upon us, his Holy Spirit. Because without him, we will not impact this world. Could I ask the worship team to come?
And we're going to lead you in a song that I just, I asked them just this morning to change the plan and ask if we could sing this song. Breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew. May God enable us to be part of his mission because the most convincing proof of his life has always been and always will be the transformation of those who say he lives. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we ask you to breathe on us afresh, each one of us individually, all of us together corporately. Oh, Lord Jesus, let your living presence be incarnate in our, in our lives. Let our, let our lives serve you. Let us be called forward into mission, whether it's mission to a neighbor or a friend or mission to the community or wherever you call us, help us to have eyes of servants, O oh Lord, to see that, Jesus, you are in this world serving. You've taken off the outer cloth, and you have bent down to serve the needs of others. And we ask you to help us to join you. Lord, may the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.